I want to thank Joel for standing in uh, and doing a wonderful job tackling 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And despite, and I listened to both sermons, despite what he said, I didn't plan on him covering the, the wives and husbands. Uh, we, we joked about it. It just so happened that's kind of how it fell out. This passage that Joel covered is obviously made difficult because of our cultural setting and the confusion regarding marriage, but I think the passage is clear, and I really appreciate Joel bringing the message with clarity and conviction. He did a, did a wonderful job. It, it brings us to Peter wrapping up this section with general principles for how we as God's people are to respond when we are mistreated. And this treatment may be from the general culture, or it may even be from family and friends, but either way, I think the principles always apply. These adjunctions always apply to the church body in terms of our responsibility to be peacekeepers. And so let's stand as we read our passage together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Lord, as we come together, we pray that this would not just be, you know, good things to believe, but that we would have our lives transformed, that we might acknowledge the need for us to humble ourselves before you and allow your word, your spirit, to change us. Lord, I thank you for this body that receives your word with gladness. And now, may you do your transforming work in each of us. We invite this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, all of you. So obviously, when he says finally, he is wrapping up this section. It's the conclusion of the section. And notice that these applications are for all of us, right? There is no wiggling out of these injunctions, you know, with a litany of excuses or exceptions. You know, we can't opt out with, you know, this is just the way I am. I'm not these things over here. That doesn't work. Christians are called to practice unity and sympathy and brotherly love and to be peacekeepers, not to have a disagreeable attitude. Unity of mind is translated to live in harmony in some other translations. It has the idea of being like-minded. The opposite of this is to have a party spirit within the church, 
divisions, mutiny. These are uncharacteristic within the body of Christ. Now, let's just acknowledge what Peter does not say. Peter does not say, never have disagreements. He doesn't say, never have issues or problems. It's not what he says. Problems are inevitable for living on the earth, dealing with human beings who disagree, have a, a you know, variety of gifts. It's just going to be the case. But can we, in the midst of that, maintain unity? And I would say, yes. I have a wife who, you know, we don't agree on everything, but we stay married, and most of the time we're unified, right? Okay? And that's just the truth of it. But we certainly don't agree on everything. So that's not what Peter is asking. But you, you opt to keep your eyes on more important things. That's really what this is about in establishing unity, okay? In the midst of, disagree, of disagreements, unity can be maintained. Are we handling differences in a way that values the other person? Or are we opting for a way of relating that divides, that shows we don't value the other person? Now, the obvious application, I think, in the context here is that unity takes place as we practice these other things. It's kind of a, a group that we take together here in these verses. It's telling us to be sympathetic, have brotherly love, tender heart, to be humble. These are components that add to the unity. Unity is not a vacuum where we deny differences and, you know, just strive to get along. It's a daily practice of these other characteristics that help to cultivate unity. To read this verse in the negative, we could say it this way. There can be no unity when we're uncaring, when we have a hard heart, when we're prideful. All right? Here's a statement I want you to think about for a second. Disunity is always a misalignment of priorities. Disunity is always a misalignment of priorities. Now, as Joel said for the two weeks that he preached, that uh, he talked about staying consistent with our theme of the Jesus way of relating, that there is a submission to God and there is a relationship with God that takes priority. All right? That is our primary responsibility. And when our primary goal are these things spiritually, then we have unity not only with Christ, but unity with one another. Christ is our conductor, and unity is maintained. When fleshly pursuits of pride and party allegiance enter the picture, disharmony is the result. Listen, disunity is not an organizational problem. Disunity is a spiritual problem. Christians may differ on how things are to be done, but they must agree on what is to be done and who we are serving. Every church is going to face criticism. Every church, that, that's just a part of the thing, right? And, and every, every leader in a, in a job, you're going to face criticism. It's, it's just going to happen, right? But every church will face criticism about programs, you know, music, style of preaching, building ad infinitum, right? But can we not agree on what our goals are and who we are serving? 
Now, frankly, some conversations never get that far, right? For instance, when Jen and I, we have a disagreement on some things, we might disagree about particulars, but we, we can reduce it down to the things that unite us, to the principles that we are united around, and then that really helps in guiding the conversation. It's the same within the church. But frankly, some people aren't interested in defining the what and who because they know that will involve submission to biblical principles. In other words, it's far easier to take offense. It's far easier to deliver pot shots. And it's far easier to exit instead of working out unity. Some just don't have the stomach for it. A man criticized D.L. Moody's methods of evangelism. And Moody said, well, I'm always ready for improvement. Tell me what your methods are of evangelism. And the man confessed, uh, I have none. And Moody said, well, then I just think I'll stick with my own. All right? Now, whatever methods we may use, we seek to honor Christ. And certainly some methods are not appropriate, but there's plenty of room for variety when unity exists in who we are serving and what the biblical principles are, right? Can we not acknowledge that unity is just not some secondary endeavor? I've heard some speak about unity as, you know, something that just kind of happens in the atmosphere when we follow Christ and, you know, you don't really work at it and blah, blah, blah. And I, I just don't see it that way. I think we have to cultivate unity. And the Bible presents it as being very vital to our function as a church. Jesus prayed for his disciples to be one. As they are united with the Father, they, and by application we, are to be one. That's as in John 17. That was the prayer of Jesus. Paul reminds the Christians of Rome, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And in verse 16, he says, then by application, live in harmony with one another. You are in the same family, the same group, the same universal church, the same God, live in harmony. Is that what is taking place? Sometimes. It can, even though we often see many problems. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, for uh, just as in one the body is one and has many members. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized in one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We were all made to drink in one spirit. Notice the oneness arises out of oneness in Christ. The position of being baptized into the body of Christ, right? And then there is this common relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And Paul said elsewhere, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in Jesus. We are a part of a, of a holy exhibit called a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a holy dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We were once separate alienated from God. But now because of the work of Christ, we are united to him and united with one another. And we're to continue that relationship with him and one another of harmony. That's why Christ died, that we could experience that. Wow. So this is not an option. And the more serious that we take these admonitions, the more urgent becomes the awareness of the sinfulness of divisions. Disunity is not just people being different, it's disobedience to the leadership of Christ. Now that doesn't mean you can't have other churches, but in the group I'm in, all right, I'm not disingenuous to others outside of my group, and certainly within the church that you're a part of, with the people in front of you, you're to work for harmony. Now, here's some other things joined to unity. Sympathy. Sympathy. This word has a practical aspect. Not only are we to understand the hurts of others, but we actually act to assist the person. So, in other words, I'm so sympathetic towards them that I don't just say words, but I do something to help them. I show kindness. It's to flow from the heart of the Christian to whoever is in front of us, right? No matter who it is, your party or not, sympathetic. How do we cultivate sympathy? It's difficult in our age, even for the church. I've heard numerous authors address about living in the digital age for the church and our supposed connection on social media. Now, you know, I'm on social media. I don't use it as much as I used to. I'm not saying it's evil, but let's at least acknowledge the truth of the matter. People are less tolerant, less kind, less sympathetic. Why? Because we can hide behind a screen. What was supposed to deliver connection and improvement in the area of the human heart and in relationships has miserably failed. You know, we can rant without face-to-face -face interaction, without immediate consequences. I think one of the greatest challenges for the church is that when people are opting for a metaverse presence, even impersonating a church in 3D, we have to never forget there is no replacement for a physical embodied fellowship. We must do all we can to stay connected face-to-face, heart-to-heart, so that we can truly weep with those who weep. Listen, it is so easy to create a caricature of a perceived opponent. It's easy to do that even seeing them face to face 
And it's much easier to do that online. Right? Younger Peter could have used this reminder of not creating a caricature before he took a sword to an opponent in a garden. Next is brotherly love. It's instructive to us that familial language is constantly used for the body of Christ. We are in the family of God with Christ as our husband, the church as the bride. We love one another, and this word is used here in 1 Peter with a phileo or brotherly kind of love. In other words, we operate with a family affection. We prioritize the relationships because of that. And you know what else we have? We have an extended resilience because it's family. When we think right about family, we are willing to do anything possible to love and keep the relationships right because it's family. When we think rightly, we forgive more easily because it is brother and sister. We all have people within our family you don't want to spend Thanksgiving with. But you do because it's family. And your, your resilience is extended. All right? It doesn't mean they have to be your best friend. But what it means is you're not returning the ill words. And you're continuing to show kindness and brotherly love. This is my brother and sister, right? I think it's a very human reaction that just like being in the first century, when, when stress comes, you know, they're, they're being persecuted. Pressure is mounting. And it's easy to close yourself in, right? I mean, we, we had that great temptation during the quarantine of COVID, right? I mean, it's like two years, and it's easy for the church to just close itself in. Put your head down. Just make it. But it's no. No. We still have an outward gaze to the needs of others, a brotherly love, encouraging other people. It's why in our life groups, one of our values is to incorporate a ministry endeavor outside the group. We don't just address needs in the group, but we want to better love our neighbor. Next is a tender heart. It's a translation of a word that means caring and compassionate. And when taking the meaning from this context... It's express, expressing care in the most unexpected places. Certainly, to a persecutor, that's unexpected. But I got to thinking about this of when you could have a tender heart. And there's perhaps no more unpleasant experience for a human than when they get sick and you throw up. Okay? And to even say it sounds inappropriate for a sermon, so excuse me. I apologize ahead of time. But as a boy, I recall several times my head over the toilet, expelling the sick from my body, and guess who was there? My mother, with her hand on my forehead, with my head over the toilet. Now, she would either feel for a fever, but always just reminding me she was there, she cared, and she had a tender touch. 
compassionate in the most unpleasant moment. I gotta tell you, I did not do that for my children. All right? <laughs> All right? Just didn't have that gift. All right? All right? I can do blood, but I don't do puke. All right? I can do that. <laughs> it is said of God in Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. There's a genuine caring for a person's pain. Listen, I think all of us want to have influence. I haven't seen too many minds changed by a diatribe on social media. There might be one out there somewhere, maybe in eternity, we'll find the one guy that was changed, but I haven't heard of many. If we really want to influence, how about we have an affection for the well-being of others even that we disagree with? A tender heart. Next is a humble mind. The Greco-Roman world did not value humility. They saw it as weakness. But I think there is no unity without humility. Proverbs said, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It's another way of saying it's a good thing. Even though the culture may not value it, God certainly values it. Humility does not mean I have to deny the gifts that God has given me. It does not mean that I have to have a long face and my face down constantly apologizing. Humility does not mean you cannot have confidence within the Lord's power in your life. Humility is aware of weaknesses, it's aware of needs, and it's not afraid to admit them. Humility does not care if others get the credit, for it realizes that the elevation of self is not the goal. You know, I've thought a lot about this recently. That in today's culture, you know what the new idol is? Our feelings. Our feelings. Think about it. That's not that feelings are bad. But the feelings of the individual have become the goal, more like an idol. For the Christian, feelings are never the goal or the end of a thing. Our feelings, be it you know, sadness or happiness, simply give us clues of something deeper. So you don't deny them. But how we feel is not our goal. When my feelings are the goal, depression or happiness become a tool of self to declare that I am the end. Instead, it is God's glory that is the end of a thing. For my life is not my own. And I have to die to myself. That's a paraphrase of the words of Jesus. We don't ignore the feelings, but they are neither the goal 
or the primary facts about reality, lest I make an idol of self. When Paul says in Romans 12.3, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, it tells us that there is a spectrum of truth, specifically the Word of God, that is our guide in our thinking about reality and who we are and the state of things. Our feelings are not the final arbiter unless we want to declare that self is king and then deny reality. Pride and unity cannot coexist. When self is king, the characteristics in 1 Peter 3 are depleted. Humility and love comes from a heart where Christ reigns. Listen to the instruction of the Apostle Paul. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one who has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the love of Christ that is to control us instead of division and vengeance. And how does that take place? We have to first settle the big question. Is my life mine or is it his? Am I living to self and my own feelings or am I living for his glory and his honor? You have to answer that question if you want the rest of this to make sense. This is where humility springs. We no longer live to ourselves. Our lives are not our own. We don't regard others just in the flesh, you know, money, prestige, outward things. That's where self takes the pride in in it. That doesn't mean that those things are evil in of, of themselves. That's just not how we're identified. That's not the end of all things. We are made in his image. We are a new creation bought and paid for. We serve him and his purposes. The old ways are gone in the flesh. And the humble realize they live for his glory and not for self. You see what I mean now when I talk about unity being a spiritual problem? We have to settle that area. Now listen, if you're anything like me, my biggest problem is me. It's self. It's my flesh. Know me for five minutes and you know I've got it. Okay? And we all do. And so it takes a daily commitment of dying to self, of of acknowledging that and acknowledging that I am not the owner of even my body. He is. And I exist for his honor, for his use, for his glory. So I want to answer that question and remind myself of that daily. 
That's what the humble do. I'm working on it. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Let us remember this was written by a man who cut off the ear of a guard who stood against Christ. Peter was quick-tempered. He apparently learned his lesson. So, if this seems impossible, if this passage seems like, man, I am so far from that, so is Peter. But look where he is now. Okay? So, let's just be open and honest before the Lord about where we're at. Let's be humble about it and say, Lord, I need work. I want to invite your Holy Spirit to change me to make these changes in my life so that I can reflect 1 Peter 3, okay? If Christ is in you, don't say it's not possible. Those who are responsible for you losing your job, or in the case of the Christians in the first century, capturing your family, causing injury to your family, your loved ones, how are you to act? Well, first of all, let's, let's just make this statement. We're not talking about, you know, like a thief coming into your house, an individual to rob you. What we're talking about are religious, in the context here of 1 Peter 3, religious and government authorities who thought they have the right and obligation to persecute you. And what Peter is saying, do not pay them back. Do not return their threats with another threat. Do not cut them down. Instead, bless them. That means look out for their good, not their demise. So this is about personal vengeance. Now, I don't think this means also that we can't use legal means, at least within the system that we live within, such as Paul did when he was arrested in Jerusalem and he went before several different authorities pleading his case, trying to get freedom. Why? Because he wanted to preach the gospel and he wanted to be free to do that. And he thought it was illegal in what they were doing. And it was. So he pled his case in court. But he was not seeking personal vengeance and he did not speak evil against them. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, Paul said. Elsewhere he said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, how do we relate to one another that hurt us? You don't return evil. Now, I don't think Paul or Peter is addressing in his passage governments who are executing justice. For instance, Paul said in Romans 13 that governments are given the responsibility and authority to execute justice and to even use force because he talks about using the sword to stop evildoers, right? Now, yes, 
This is abused by some authorities. But that doesn't mean they no longer have the responsibility for justice. I'll just make these points to say this. Not seeking personal vengeance and authorities executing justice can coexist. And then Peter adds that we are to bless others. Man, I mean, I'm good with, you know, not seeking vengeance, but then to add that, bless others who persecute me, who hurt me, come on. That's what it is. That's the standard. How is this done? Well, this could mean um, at least praying for them. Pray for those who have hurt you, who've, off- who've offended you. You know, it's my experience that those who I think have wronged me, it's really hard for me to stay angry at them as I pray for them. Okay? And I can even see my prayers change. You know, at first I'm saying, God, execute your justice upon the head of this individual. I got to admit, I've prayed that way, right? But then over time, then I'm praying, God, you know, uh, bless them. Uh, It may be some time between those two prayers. But what I'm saying is that it's really hard to stay angry at a person you're praying for. Right? You pray for them. Then treat with kindness, those who come against us. That's another way that we bless them, right? Forgive others who injure you. And that means I leave the vindication to God. Listen, it's easy to replay events, and I've done it in my mind. You know, you have a conflict with somebody, you feel like you've been mistreated, and I'm replaying in my mind, you know, if I'd have only said this to show this person how they were wrong, if I could if I could have only made this point, I would have put them in their place. Right? And then you read a passage like this and you realize that's stinking thinking. Right? That's the flesh. Instead, and by the way, you have a choice on how you think. And you have a choice on your motives, right? So I have to realize the sin of that. I have to change my thinking and look to the power of Christ in me so that I can meditate on how I may bless them. Wow. And what does God promise when you do that? Well, he says he's going to return to us great reward. Blessing. How's that blessing realized? Well, I think the smartest thing to say at this point is we'll leave it in God's hand to bless as he wants to bless us. All right? That's probably the smartest thing to say. We don't know exactly how all of this is to take place. Now, he provides spiritual rewards with great joy and and peace. He does that. Uh, He provides rewards in heaven. He can even give material rewards. But the point is, I don't think God is going to leave those faithful efforts to seek peace unrecognized, and he's not going to leave us empty-handed. 
he will bless those who do those things. But if I had to cast my lot on one, I'll let Jesus' words speak for me. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm glad elsewhere in this passage it talks about God's ears and eyes being open to the righteous. Because you know what? He'll recognize it all. And you may feel like, man, you know, you got to grit your teeth and you're, you're dealing with people you're trying to be kind to and you know they don't return it. They just continue to, you know, be begrudgingly, actively, aggressively against you. <laughs> and it's all you can do to not spit and say something and to be kind? Well, take this to the bank. God sees it, God knows it, and he will reward you. I mean that. Does it get any better than that? And I'll leave it in his hands on how he wants to do that. Certainly in heaven. But you know what? I think that you'll never regret being kind to someone, right? But the words that I regret are those where in anger I tried to get back. Verses 10 and 12 of our passage in 1 Peter are quoting from Psalm 34 that was written by David who was trying to escape family and friends who were out to kill him. <laughs> Friends who were out to kill him, right? For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, this obviously does not mean that when you obey God, you will be trouble-free in life. I mean, look at what David had to go through. And look at what the first century Christians had to go through and look at our own lives and you know that trouble is just a part of living here on this earth. David himself was greatly persecuted. Life and good days can either have a future perspective in heaven or mean life here on earth or both. Now, life and good days in Christ means that I have peace and joy in the midst of any circumstance. God does not call me to hate life or see all of life as this giant burden or to escape even the realities of life, but rather I can experience joy by knowing that my life is in the hands of a sovereign God. That is Peter and Paul singing in a jail because their life was in the hands of a sovereign God. Now, I don't think Peter is suggesting 
that we do some type of psychological gymnastics that refuse to face facts. Rather, he was urging us to take a positive approach by faith that sees the presence and promises of God in every situation. That brings joy. That's, that's real living. And a sign that we have done this is when we can not revile in return, not return evil for evil, not speak against another person, even though you feel like they might deserve it. And then not lying, being deceitful about a situation to get out of trouble, not being truthful. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When we see the example of David, we read of this incredible sense of respect for Saul and love, even though he was in positions to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. He didn't seek vengeance against Abimelech or Saul. David loved them and returned their cursing with respect, without retaliation. We don't just omit evil, but we seek to do good to those who mistreat us. Pursuing peace is actually a hunting term. It means to have determination and persistence, just like a good hunter does. Only in this, what we're pursuing is peace. Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It means do all you can to be at peace. The fact is, many are one and done in this regard when it comes to being hurt. You hurt me, you offend me, I'm done with you. The Christian is to be persistent to work out issues so that harmony is achieved. Some aren't interested in peace, but the faithful disciple is persistent. Janet and I have dear friends who we had a severe falling out of, not just ourselves, but others as well. We tried numerous times to remedy the situation. And frankly, there were hard feelings on both sides. Years passed, and a situation arose to where there was an opportunity for us to bless one another. And when that took place, it was like something happened in the heavenlies. Like a door was opened, and we now enjoy a truly peaceful relationship that's growing and that has been reconciled. But listen, it takes both parties for peace to take place. But let me tell you something. It was worth the years of waiting. It was worth the effort. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his eyes are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
There's a sense of intimacy with God and those who walk the righteous path that Peter has laid out for us here. Remember, he's writing to a church, okay? God hears and sees the faithful efforts, and he eagerly responds to them. I think this is an echo of verse 7 that Joel talked about, of when husbands mistreat their wives, what's it do? It hinders their prayers, right? God is not mocked by people who claim to have, you know, freedom in Christ, the love of Christ, a walk with God, and yet hold grudges, refuse to forgive. Those are polar opposites. Even though there's still a relationship, by turning his face against them means the intimacy or fellowship is negatively impacted. Now, God's grace is always available. But this does not mean the unrepentant believer will not reap consequences of his or her disobedience. How many of you have ever been out to eat and you've seen a couple who are sitting for an hour eating their food and they haven't spoke one word to one another? How many of you have experienced that with yourself? No, don't raise your hand, all right? I don't want to see the hand. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You're married, you have relationship, but the face is turned against each other. When in fellowship, we can gaze into each other's eyes and enjoy the communication, right? our willingness to cultivate peace and forgiveness with others. Even the worst of offenders is a barometer of our relationship with God. And when God's love and grace is poured in our hearts, Peter's saying, don't block that. Continue and express that with others. Because let me remind you, we were so undeserving I've been so undeserving. And yet God continues to love, continues to pursue. Not because I deserve it, but because that's what his grace does. May we as a people continue to allow him to mold us into being peacekeepers. That doesn't mean you don't have conviction. That doesn't mean you don't stand up for truth but it means relationally. I am tender-hearted, not always disagreeable, not trying to win the fight, not trying to put people in their place, not trying to prove to others I'm right. Humble, tender-hearted, peaceful. That's you, right? And that's me. That's what he's calling us to. Let's pray.